I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Hello and welcome to the Black and White Podcast. This is our third episode and today we're going to be talking about black economic empowerment amongst other things. But if you're an African, you should really care about this subject along with the likes of democracy. Yeah, interestingly enough, democracy isn't what we should aspire to. And what we're seeing right now is basically the unfolding of what um, the person that captioned democracy himself, Plato, um, alluded to. U.S. elections. It's been crazy how the whole world stops and, and watches when America votes, you know. They have to. What's actually ridiculous is that only America gets to vote. The Brackenfall debacle. And so it just takes a small spark to turn a small intimate event into a outright whites-only event that disallowed colored students from entering. And the EFF blew it up not actually addressing the true nature of the problem. The true nature of the problem being systematic racism. And the state of broad-based black economic empowerment in our country. And what I need to realize is that a black, the, the, my black counterpart is not hired above me only because of the color of their skin. They are hired because of past injustices that need to be addressed. They are hired to increase the productivity of the business. They are hired to give hope to his family. They're hired to give hope to the business, to South Africa. It's not just about the color of their skin. This and much more from the humble opinions of a black guy and a white guy. So how's your week been, Jono? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Uh, mine has been protesting, so that's been interesting. Yeah. Um, been also a nuanced conversation so many guys like scared to communities and then the rest of us coming into work like what's the problem here everyone come to work why are there no trucks in the mine <laughs> yeah but i suppose that speaks to you know what we've been talking about you know so often on here is the different realities um it's difficult for them to relate um as mm. to why they're protesting because they're not living their reality but absolutely yeah and then on another note U.S. elections. <laughs> That's been wild. That's been a circus. Yeah. It's been crazy how the whole world stops and, and watches when America votes, you know. They have to. Yeah. Because it affects everything. I mean, look at the strength of our rand, how it's been fluctuating so dramatically. Look at the state of our shares. Look at the price of gold. Like, it affects everything. What's actually ridiculous is that only America gets to vote. <laughs> like, yeah. everyone should vote for the American president in yeah. the whole world because yeah. they flip and affect everyone. Yeah. But what, what are your personal sort of feelings uh, around um, Joe Biden? <laughs> well, the, the contested Joe Biden win. Oh, man. My feelings on the contesting or my feelings on Joe Biden or my feelings on US just politics? The, just the whole <laughs> shenanigans at look, the moment. Yeah, look, um, I mean, I follow it. I do follow it, not like super closely. Like I wasn't up at one o'clock in the morning to see what the results were. Um, and anybody who was would have been sadly disappointed because it took four days for yeah. the results to come out. And even now they're yeah. undecided. And but, but we sort of anticipated this. I mean, this is an unprecedented um, election in the in the sense that it's coronavirus, you know. Um, yes, yes. And a lot of the, the ballots were, were mailed Mailing, in. Yeah. So my view is that... Their whole voting system is, I mean, they've got two candidates, essentially, that you can vote for anyone else. If you vote for anyone else, your vote almost doesn't count um, because you're just never going to get voting power behind them. to actually... Kanye West, for example. Exactly, exactly. How many votes did he get? Four? I, I think he got four. <laughs> it, just goes, it just goes to show, like, the state of the world when Kanye West is seriously running for the president of yeah. America. Yeah, no, that's true. But, yeah, I think the, the system is a little bit broken, and um, I think... They are where the rest of the world looks to for a picture of democracy. And it's the most divided country in the world. The fact that it's still called the United States. And, I mean, they, I mean, you could see. Like, you, they put it in picture form how divided their states are. Yeah. <laughs> how ununited they are. And how the fight is kind of ununited. And I get that, like, yeah, I mean, the votes were very close in most, well, in a lot of the states. Percent. But I think where the issue is, and I think maybe even the, the 1% deficit proves it is that there's such a major divide between 50% of people and 50% of the other people. 
between Republicans and, and Democrats and left and right. And I think in South Africa, yeah, we get fed a lot of the the very left media. Yeah, just a lot of firepower against the, the right media. And so we get fed that's the only likely candidate and Trump is a bit of a lunatic. Um, it's all a bit of a circus with him in power. But I don't know, like I've tried, I've really, really tried to listen to um, supporters for Trump and tried to find some people that are kind of objective to listen to and to read. And it's tough to find that, number one. And number two, I still struggle to support Trump. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's no secret that the man himself is not, um, is not a very savory character. And uh, I guess that's sort of what you're alluding to is, you know, he has very few fans, especially in the more, you know, sort of pragmatic or forward-thinking um, generation. Um, but when you had when you sort of look at um, the policies that has been put in place in the past four years that he's been president, uh, I think a lot of it is um, especially from a from a um, economic perspective um, beneficial greatly to America. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know that's 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 something that he isn't really given enough credit for True. um even though it's to the ex- to the expense of the rest of the world yeah um but yeah i think it's 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 highly indicative of the politics um of the day you know nationalism we're seeing it um rear its head again um and nationalism obviously has you know a bit of a a positive side but also a negative um annotation to it right so if you had to look at the you know just global politics in general um, there's this sense of localization opposed to globalization. You look at Brexit, the rise of China, uh, and, and and all of these different um, geopolitical um, events that are going down in the, in the rest of the world. It, it, it's almost like there's a sense of, of localization and going back to the basics, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, because globalization, as we know, in as much as it's um, sort of expediated the, the, the rate of, of economic growth, it's also worsened inequality. So the poor have become extremely poor. America is the picture and the metaphorical epitome of democracy. It should be, at least, um, because it was founded upon democracy. And so the world looks to it to set an example of democracy. And Trump has completely eroded trust in democracy, in their democratic election. And now the rest of the world looks to it and like, flip, it's democracy all it's made up to be. And the rest of, the, rest of Africa, where, I mean, if you look at what Ethiopia is going through right now, on the brink of civil war, pretty much into civil war, they're looking at America like, this democracy is not something maybe that we want. Yeah, interestingly enough, democracy isn't what we should aspire to. And what we're seeing right now is basically the unfolding of what um, the person that captioned democracy himself, Plato, um, alluded to, right? So, so in his sort of five ideal states, right, democracy is actually the least. And he warns us, yeah, so, so, so top is, is what he calls a democracy. So in a democracy, basically, um, the leadership struck. They're highly educated men. They're men with, he calls, souls of gold. Um, and yeah, that's that's the terminology that was used in the day. And these were sort of the ideal leaders. These were people that were detached from um, greed and the love of money. And these were men that were educated, that were deeply philosophical in their, in their way of thinking, right? And then you sort of fall into a monarchical type of governance, which obviously we know monarchy, there's a king and a queen, and there's a sort of a, a, a aristocratic uh, class around them, and then everyone, self, everyone else underneath. Um, and according to Plato, even this is better than democracy. Um, but strangely enough, even post that, we look at an imperial government, and an imperial government is even better than a democracy. The caliber of leaders that we will get in a democracy um, will always denigrate to the Trumpian type uh, of leadership, which is populism. happened in your week how's your week been <laughs> what is your week been shaped by i don't know if you've seen parasite oh man i've been wanting to but my lady friend 
does not agree with watching any subtitled movie. It's very frustrating. Trust me, it's 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 well worth it. I know. It's 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 very good. Um, but also, I think for me, it's just the sort of um, social commentary behind it, um, because it really speaks to um, what we were talking about, like globalization and and its adverse effects. Mm. Um, because we we you know practically everything that we use in day to day life is pretty much coming from Asia, but we don't think of the the class of people that manufacture these things and and the hardships of of um, the lives that they lead. So yeah, I, th- I think it's a very uh, insightful uh, movie from that front. But another cool movie I saw was um, the Joker. Oh. Yeah, that's that's also quite quite um quite Steering. heavy. <laughs> um but uh, and controversial as well, but I think again it also speaks to um the state of our society. So I think those those sort of two movies um really stuck out out of the things that I've been doing in the past two weeks, yeah. Uh I suppose what shaped a lot of my week was yeah, just um some thoughts around what has happened in in the protest, specifically the mine, um, mining in general, and just a lot of unrest off the back of what happened at um, Sienakal. And yeah, man, it's been rough. Yeah. Yeah, I think once again, um, you know, not to be grim or pessimistic because, you know, that's obviously the opposite of what we're trying to achieve here. But it really does feel like um, our nation is at a knife's edge at the moment. Mm. Um, and decisions that are going to be made today um, ultimately affect you know the the the, the rest of the, of the country and you know the how things precipitate in the future um but yeah it's it's it's, it's been a really um sad set of affairs um that we've witnessed the the level of divisions especially on things that shouldn't be dividing us as a people um you know especially just going back to the um whole cynical debacle you know the fact that a man was murdered Brendan Horner, you know, he was murdered in cold blood. Why do we need to be politicizing? There's zero reason why we should be taking that heinous crime and politicizing it and making it about a a political football, really, which in all honesty is exactly what the the EFF has has, has since done. And I think it's, it's just deeply indicative of where we're at as a country. So really, you think it shouldn't have been politicized? Like, I mean, what happened to George Floyd was also politicized in the States and politicized around the rest of the world and pretty much kick-started the Black Lives Matter movement simply because one man was, and that was mapped onto a history of subjugation and injustice. And that just became the, the poster boy to say, can you see what's happening? Can you see that it's like, we've been talking about it and we've been... We've been shouting about it, but now you can really see it, see it. In this particular instant, I think is, is, is malicious in this sense, right? So Brendan Horner is murdered. The suspects are apprehended, right? You know, the, the way that um, the, the community responded, you know, was not correct in that they, they, you know, went to the police station and they stormed and they, you know, turned over um, trucks and, 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 you know, the chaos that then unfolded. That was a that was a, a pity. But again, I think it speaks to something we spoke about in our last episode about the history of protests in South Africa and the use of violence in inventing our frustration, right? But then for the EFF to now come out and say, listen, there's no such thing as farm murders, um, and therefore we are coming to stage a a protest. I, I don't actually know what the protest that the EFF was staging was for. Was were they for the suspects um, that were being tried in Sienical, or was it for you know stating that farm murders are not a reality? I actually don't know. That to me is a, is the difference where Black Lives Matter. The people that were rallying were rallying behind the victim. But again, it's the same thing as as the Brackenfell um, issue that's going down at the moment in Cape Town. Um, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of nuance to this, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of history and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of um, these terrible things that have happened in the past, right? And and they're reenacting themselves in in the manner that they are. But I think to excuse that for you know violent and reckless behaviour. I think is just unacceptable. And I, and I know it's not the popular um, sort of opinion, especially in the work circles, but it's unsustainable. Mm. And we have to understand that 
at this rate, we will have no country to fight for. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I think I, I think I kind of get where you're coming from. I think um, I'm not sure if the unrest started with the farmers in Senegal and the EFF reacted to that or if the EFF reacted to the suspects being apprehended. And then the farmers reacted to that. It's a li- the, con- the timeline is a little bit confusing. And then again, at Brockenfell High School, protesting against a whites-only event, which is quite interesting because, I mean, so l- let's just like dive into a little bit of what happened. So we've got Brockenfell High School in a majority white area that has... Um, shadows and taints of apartheid era thinking and the the high school is i would say like apparently about 60 40 white to colored and 10 percent of the coloreds are black and the i think there's about i think there was 256 matriculants and because of covid and everything they couldn't have a matric dance so a couple of parents got together a couple of white parents got together to have a small intimate kind of matric dance um with all the costs involved, they could only have, I think it was 100 um, pupils at the at the dance. And because the school had said, sorry, you can't advertise this through through us, we, we won't advertise it, and you can't advertise it publicly, um, the students then just messaged each other via WhatsApp, to, um, basically getting the, the advert for the event around via WhatsApp. And not only did... I think the the message not reached black the, the black kids because um, the white kids were messaging their white friends, but also the tickets were five hundred rand. So I mean, like that's that's a pretty steep ticket for for any student. And what ended up happening is that they sold seventy tickets and uh, seventy pupils went to the dance. Two teachers were invited, and it was all whites. But right on the back of that, there's a history in this high school of racist remarks, oppression, injustice just systematic racism in the high school that has been hushed um, for decades. And so tensions are extremely tight. There is a significant divide between the white students and the students of color. And so it just takes a small spark to turn a small intimate event into a outright whites-only event that disallowed colored students from entering. And the EFF blew it up not actually addressing the true nature of the problem. The true nature of the problem being systematic racism in the school, management in the school being all white, the student governing body being all white, the parent governing body being all white. And that's where the issue lies. The school is trying to be transformative and they've got, they're making steps towards transformation. But when the board is still white, when management is still white, that's where the real issue is. And the real issue is that like white kids hate their colored counterparts and vice versa. That's where the real issue was. And the EFF blew up this event and directed all attention towards the event. And I feel in doing so have completely taken focus away from the real core of the problem. And I mean, yeah, it blew up. There's videos of white parents attacking the, the EFF protesters and there's all this kind of nuance behind it of like the white parents maybe wanting to protect their kids because history shows that like EFF protesting can be violent. And so I want to protect my kids. And then the EFF reacting to that being like, we were just having a peaceful protest. Now you're attacking us. This is absolutely disgusting and ridiculous. And someone was apprehended and jailed for it. And apparently a gun went off and it just escalated. And it's such a perfect metaphor for what is happening in South Africa. And it's it's yeah it's hard to talk about it because it's really hard to see hope in that situation. I think you really just wrapped that up um, so nicely because it seems like we, we're living in such a world of sensationalism. Um, we sort of get, we lose the bigger picture of what it is exactly that needs fighting for and that yeah. needs changing. 
So the institutionalized racism is is real in our schools. The hatred um, between races is is real. It's palpable oftentimes. Um, and unfortunately, even in places like schools, um, which which then sort of solidifies the fact that racism and these sort of backwards ways of thinking are perpetuated even further. And that's a pity. But again, it doesn't excuse the nature with, with which we, we protest, you know. And unfortunately, it just speaks to um, politicking and politics creeping into what ought to be, you know, a social um, and a, a a matter of dialogue and a matter of education and a matter of, um, you know, mutual improvement, but is, is ultimately... Um, politicized and turned into something that is toxic, and and, and it, it, it's a really unfortunate set of of of, of events. Um, but I think it, it uh, another you know very um, good example of where you know this has been a reality is and actually the the topic of our discussion today, which is in the black economic empowerment as a policy that was meant to. Um, redress the sort of inequalities of the past and ultimately um, rid our society of poverty which disproportionately affects the black majority. Now, this is obviously something that, you know, no person should obviously against because, you know, the betterment of the majority, the better the society is and the more fruitful, you know, our, our society is. But again, politics has has since crept um, into 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 you know the the discussion around empowerment of of Black Africans coming out of um, apartheid. So, I suppose a good starting point um, is you know to to get a bit of context as to what exactly you know made Black empowerment um, BEE a necessity. And from then, um, how has it actually precipitated and how has it been um, actualized in, 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 in today's society? Mm. I think the first question in that, like for over a century, South African society was based on an economic and political model that basically institutionalized racism, where the white minority were able to repress the black majority and essentially extract resources from them. So in the process, they, they created probably um, the most unequal society in the world. And, and, and we're seeing the, the scars of that still today, even where we're still the most unequal society in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, we can look at it as a, a political issue, as an economic issue. But I mean, the, the reality is that blacks had no access to land, to capital, and basically, like, the, the color bar blocked them from upward societal movement. And we removed the incentive for them to climb the societal ladder, the economic ladder, the political ladder. And I think, I mean, yeah, answering that, the question for the need is quite easy. But I think an interesting um, school of thought that has kind of arisen since actually BE or triple BE was put in place was why couldn't the inequality naturally work itself out? So surely in a democratic society where um, everyone now has equal rights, black people who had previously not been able to buy land would simply be able to buy back the land from whites, where blacks with talent um, would acquire an education and um, where, that they were previously blocked from and thereby get jobs and then be justified for their productivity and move up the economic ladder. So maybe it's an interesting question to pose to you, like, why couldn't the conditions of apartheid eventually unravel naturally? The first answer I can give is that, A, it would take way too long. Because as you, as you mentioned, um, we're coming out of a system that um, systematically suppressed Africans. So a good starting point is education. So we know that um, the Bantu education, for example, which... Um, black people received was severely substandard. So already um, th there's a whole generation that is not 
on par, right? So, so that's number one. Number two, if you had to look at the amount of wealth that has compounded over the multiple generations that have had a leg up for so many years, it's just impossible to catch up. It's impossible. Um, well, not impossible, but it's, it's, it's highly difficult. Um, to catch up to to the multi generational, because ultimately, I think as human beings, we we have a sense of um, of wanting better for our children, and we I think we we do to the best of our, our abilities um, what we can to to make sure that the next generation inherits a world that is better um, than ourselves or the generations before that. But oftentimes, it's at the expense of others, and unfortunately, in South Africa. Um, that was disproportionately um, the case for whites against um, black South Africans. Um, yeah, so I, I think just based on those two points alone, um, organic sort of uh, growth from a from a, um, a black perspective to 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 reach you know the the levels of of wealth that the the white people in South Africa were enjoying for for multiple generations, it was just not feasible. Absolutely, and I would go so far as to say it would be impossible. And I think you've addressed two of the three major assumptions in that argument. Number one was to say that blacks had capital or wealth from which they could draw upon to have asset transferal, right? They, they didn't have access to capital. The second assumption that you addressed was the education. So we're assuming that somehow there would be service and product delivery upon which blacks could draw from to then get the education necessary to get them up to a standard by which they could compete for compete with white people for jobs. The third major assumption, I think, is the fact that system systematic or even just personal racism would be done away with, which it wouldn't. We're still seeing that today in massive effect of um, biased choice for your for, for employment. So who would be employed? over which, which, which employee would be employed over the other candidate. And if racism still persists, which it undoubtedly would have, if, if BE wasn't implemented, mm -hmm. there would be no system to prevent a racial um, selection of employees. So there'd yeah. just be no upward movement in, yeah. towards, um, no, no socioeconomic movement. You can't just address the issue politically. And you can't either just address it economically. economically yeah. The one feeds off the other. If you if you don't address inequality, the economic inequality, yeah. you essentially eventually have an uprising against the the, the political power and party. Yeah. I mean, political party and power. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have a natural progression towards, like you said, nationalism towards um, a populace um, towards populist policies that that benefit the majority, but then exclude and oppress the minority. And then you have uprising of the minority against the majority and you have civil war and it becomes like this endless cycle. So there was it was necessary for there to be an economic address along with the political freedom that was introduced come 1994. So, so basically, at the moment of that transition from apartheid, there was already kind of a notion that was referred to in the government's 1994 reconstruction and development. And that was addressing affirmative action. And so there was already this talk of the, the need to positively address the past inequalities in an economic fashion. And actually what ended up happening um, already from 1993 was the private sector already introducing a form of policy, a form of affirmative action. And one such example was um, in 1993, the financial services company Sunlum sold 10% of its stake in Metropolitan Life to a black-owned consortium led by Ntato Motlana, a former secretary of the ANC's Youth League and one-time doctor to Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. So they were, what they were seeing was already a movement from the private sector to... Um, get an advantage, get a step ahead in this affirmative action movement, but actually to serve the purposes of the company and the white management rather than addressing the actual issue at stake. 
Um, and so what, what we saw from 1994 was like basically a growth in these small deals between a large white majority company. Well, I mean, every, own, every company was at that point, every JSE listed company was white owned at that point. And um, we saw like a number of these small deals to give a, shmo- a small share to a, a black person, usually a single black person with some kind of political status. And by 1998, 231 of these had already happened. And there's some evidence that already by that stage, 10% of the JSE was owned by black businesses. But there's this talk of kind of a passive ownership, a shadow ownership, because of these small deals that were made to people that didn't have, that, to, to black people that didn't have necessarily have a lot of um, business experience, but that had political status, and therefore it was a political movement a political move to gain favor for the company to sell parts of the business to um, single black people yeah, or singly owned black yeah. companies. So it's, it's just so interesting for me um, how that's, that sort of problem is obviously still, still persisted to this day where, you know, fronting is almost um, synonymous with um, affirmative action of that sort. Um, because obviously these big companies could tell what was happening, um, that freedom was in the air, and they were obviously a, a step ahead. Um, so that's, exactly. that's pretty interesting. Exactly. And so at this stage, the government wasn't really, this stage being 1994, the government wasn't really intervening in any major way in these deals and transfer of shares of the promotion or the promotion of black people onto boards of directors. So the government hadn't made any sort of formal legislation or formal structure that would ensure affirmative action. So the government then began to implement the first kind of building blocks of BEE through a green paper on employment equity. Um, And that was released in 1995 and then resulted in the Employment Equity Act of 1995. Still not any kind of formal legislation, but it did stipulate that businesses must eliminate unfair discrimination in current employment and remuneration practices and then take positive measures to attract, develop, and retain individuals from previously disadvantaged groups, i.e. blacks, coloreds, Indians, and women, and people with disabilities. So just giving businesses a kind of general upstanding um, policy to follow, but no way to monitor that, no way to measure it, and no way to implement it. Just kind of a general direction that businesses should have, and consequently it was pretty much dismissed, except by 231 deals that were made um, by 1998 to get a bit of um, shareholder uh, representation for, for political reasons primarily. As far as I understand, up until sort of 2007, this was sort of the the standard, you know, where the the market almost determined how to affirmative action was going to be structured internally. But ultimately, um, a business's primary focus is on its shareholders and on providing as much value as they can to itself and not necessarily um, a social project. So it was never going to to be a case where businesses are going to solely be interested in the macro equitability of of our society and not necessarily, you know, look out for their best interest. Mm. That's interesting because I think actually... Definitely the political and social agenda from the government's point of view was that if you have better representation in your company, your company will do better. If you've got better representation, you've got more diversity in the company, you've got a different diversity of thinking, um, more of a diversity of um, actions that will take place in the in the company, and that should, in the end, um, benefit the company as a whole. And there was major evidence for this throughout the world that more represented or better represented, more diverse companies were doing better and providing more to their shareholders. But the past injustices and the past um, inequalities showed that companies didn't care about this. The white people didn't care about better representation or even the businesses doing better. What they cared about was white people benefiting from the majority. White people um, extracting resources from black people, knowing that black people were really good at extracting resources. Yeah. And taking advantage of that. Yeah. So what what I'd like to what I'd like to ask you though, 
And, and it's still a rhetoric and a question that persists even now that is just, I think, not only dangerous, but just ridiculous. But it's this, it's this outcry from white people that the initial stages and even today's stages of, of affirmative action and, and black economic empowerment was simply a reversal of apartheid. That in order to address, address the injustice of the past, injustice is being practiced and oppressed onto white people. For instance, in people not being hired on merit, but rather on the color of their skin or their gender or their ability. Well, their non-ability, their disability. Yeah, yeah. So, like, how how would you respond to that outcry? If I was, if I was making that statement to you right now, how would you respond to that? Yeah. So, so obviously, this is this is a question that's um, almost you know attached to to affirmative action. If you had to look at when the term itself was coined, um, which is in America back in 1961, I think it was. Um, where basically they acknowledge that the the minorities in 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 this particular instance that uh, the black americans as well as the hispanic and um uh, native american communities were vastly um underrepresented in in the economy but ultimately like uh, the instant sort of knee jerk reaction is oh no something has been being taken away from us um this is obviously the 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 white position in south africa um but i think as we as we mentioned earlier i mean you know, for generations, you have had the, you know, unprecedented levels of access to the economy that was structurally not allowed for the rest of the society. Now, of course, um, you know, there's there's going to be a need to to allow for for that sort of rectification to happen, and it wasn't going to happen organically. Something had to give, and ultimately, the job of the government is to basically lift up the the least of the least in in society to represent them almost at, at, at the same level as those that have power and money and access, mm. which in South Africa's context was the white community. Right. So you spoke also about um, some of the examples in, in, you know, in the world where we see, um, you know, prosperity coming from uh, a more diverse um, economy, a more inclusive uh, uh, and more diverse economy um, overall. And Malaysia is, is a good example of this, um, where today we see Malaysia has um, what, one or two percent um unemployment. Um, but what's interesting about Malaysia is um, that affirmative action was actually in favor of the majority, which is very similar to what the case is in South Africa, because one of the biggest um, sort of um, complaints that we hear is, in what instance do you ever hear of affirmative action benefiting the majority at the expense of the minority, which is nonsense, because, for example, in, in the EU and in Sweden and whatever, their affirmative action was directed at women, which were which were um, disproportionately underrepresented in the workplace, for example. And so, therefore, the the benchmark was lowered for women to get into the workplace, to get into um, educational institutions, for women to get more access for a period of time, um, so as to equate that imbalance that was that was prevalent. Um, so likewise, in South Africa, there was no way that we were going to organically see, you know, the black middle class rise to the extent that the the white middle class had enjoyed for multiple generations. And therefore, the government had had to somehow step in and, and facilitate yeah, that process. Okay, agree with you. So let's flip that around then. What do you see, say to a black person who feels like they weren't hired on merit, but rather on the color of their skin? So, I mean, you were speaking about just watching the um, Springbok final just the other day. And um, I just finished watching Chasing the Sun. Yes, I have. Oh, so good. Brilliant. Yeah. And at one stage, Sia Khaleesi is sitting down and says, um, just after he's made captain, that he wasn't sure if it was, if it was actually based on merit, a, a kind of show for... Um, South African rugby and to show that the quota system is working in South African sport, uh, that, you know, equal representation is happening in South African rugby, and maybe even as a facade to show the rest of the world that tra transformation is happening in, in South Africa. And, I mean, the same question, like, let's say I asked that question from you, you were just... You were just so, I think that's a brilliant example that you've just given for, for two reasons, right? So, number one, um, so what you're alluding to is is 
tokenism, right? So Sia Khaleesi felt, am I a token? You know, am I the token black guy in this team because X number of black people are required to be in this team? So in as much as that is fundamentally, well, not in, in line with the sort of meritocratic world that we live in, right? The fact that there's a black person in the Springboks team has made it attainable for so many other black people. And it's not something that's that's um, could have possibly been, you know, in their wildest imagination. But because there is that token, then you sort of serve as a figure, right, that represents that it is doable. Inasmuch as you may not have the credentials or you may not um, necessarily hold the qualifications that um, guarantee that you you qualify to be in the position that you are in. But the fact that you are in that position, eventually they will create some value and add value to that particular team. Yes, it, it almost sort of perpetuates um, a certain level of um, meritocratic values that we hold as a society. But what it does do is it's, it stimulates the, the imagination of those that were previously disadvantaged and it allows them to 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 feel like they're a part of um, the development and and ultimately in pushing forward the culture of that particular um, environment that they're operating in. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think it's both posi- both positive in a in a general sense, but also positive in a personal sense. So as much as you might feel like you didn't get a job on merit, there's a certain sense in where in which by just getting that job, not only do you get a sense of self-worth? Not only do you feel empowered, but you put that back into the business. Yes. So in that case, it is advantageous from a business perspective to hire people of color. Yes. Because by empowering, you're empowering yourself. Yeah. By empowering your employees and giving them a sense of self-worth, they put that back into the business. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so from a personal, from a general, and from a business sense, it just makes the most sense. Yeah, and I think also there's um, there's a certain level of of um, you know a sense of trust. You feel like you've been entrusted in this role. Mm. Therefore, there's there's a certain level of wanting to to fill those shoes and 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 learn as much as you can and grasp as much as you can and grow as an individual. Mm. So yeah, yeah. I just think the real um, danger comes in um, where it's. It's almost like a shadow hiring. It's a passive employee. It's a passive managerial role that we're that we're alluding to earlier. So let's let's go back to um, 1998. So at the same time um, that this initial response was put into place by the government, um, there was a massive economic dip. The the JSE stocks um, crashed, and um, and in response to this, there was a growing sense that. Black economic empowerment had to be expanded and institutionalized. Um, and this was in around 1999 that the NC government basically supported the creation of the BEE Commission. And funnily enough, that was under the chairmanship of Cyril Ramaphosa. What would a South African podcast be without Hardy Dodge in the background? <laughs> So in 2001, uh, the BE Commission then defined what black economic empowerment was, and they defined it as, it's quite a long definition, an integrated and coherent socio-economic process located within the context of the country's national transformation program, namely the RDP. We spoke about that earlier. It is aimed at redressing the imbalances of the past by seeking to substantially and equitably transfer and confer the ownership management and control of South Africa's financial and economic resources to the majority of its citizens, all things that that we have spoken about at length already. It seeks to ensure broader and meaningful, more meaningful participation in the economy by black people to achieve sustainable development and prosperity. Again, something that we've talked we've spoken about, how better representation, more meaningful participation for, in the economy from black people eventually leads to sustainable development and prosperity for the majority, for everyone, because the majority were the black people. Yeah. So the BEE Commission also stipulated that that black economic empowerment couldn't only focus on asset transfer 
it had to look at management it had to look like look at um, business representation as a whole so it, it it stipulated that a framework a legal framework needed to be put in place to target leadership of businesses um, human resource development representation and employment equity enterprise development preferential procurement investment ownership and control of enterprises and economic assets so it's a lot of words to basically say it was a it was a holistic approach compared to the initial approach was just like asset transferal and um, shareholder stake, right? So Sunlam just sold 10% of their shares at a 40% discount to a singly owned small business that was represented and owned by um, a person of political status, a black person of political status. And so now there's this whole shift towards a more holistic approach. And the approach that they took, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the three, four, five, six plan. So that's Never basically that um, companies listed on the JSE should have 30% black directors, 40% black share ownership. So that means not necessarily leadership, but 40% of your shares should be owned by black people. Then, you know, that's how shareholding works. If 40% of black people own your shares, yeah. then your shareholders and your management and your leadership and the decisions are made in favor of the black ownership. Yes. Yeah. 50%, so three, four, five, 50% black suppliers for production inputs. So your, your suppliers must be 50% black owned and then 60% black management. So right at the top, your, your um, executive committee should be represented by, 60% of it should be represented by black people, which is still like even just on the fringes of what it should be if it was represented by the representation of our country that is 80% black people yeah. and you've got a 60% black management in your company. Yeah. So it's still, it's not even quite getting to where it should be, Yes, but this is the minimum requirement yeah. to achieve transformation in South Africa. Yeah. Sorry, just, so I just want to clarify one thing. Um, so in terms of black, okay, does so it... They uh, define black as black colored Indian. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Which is also interesting. Yeah. So um, essentially, the the BE Commission gave the GS, the JSE ten years um, in which to implement the three four five six plan, as well as a couple other things that that we can just mention: um, the transferal of thirty percent of productive land to black peasants and collective organisations, an increase of the black equity participation in the economy to twenty five percent. So that's just by the general economy, not just by um, JSE-listed companies. 50% of government procurement directed to black-owned companies. You following? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30% of private sector procurement directed to black-owned companies. 40% of black executives. That was a repetition. 40% mm -hmm. of black executives in the private sector. 50% of the borrowers from public from public finance institutions should be black-owned companies. 30% of contracts and concessions made by the government should involve black companies. And 40% of government incentives to the private sector should go to black companies. So it's a really holistic approach targeting yeah. the private sector, targeting government procurement, targeting um, state-owned enterprises, small to medium um, businesses, businesses outside of the JSE and JSE-listed companies. So really quite a holistic approach. But the problem was is that these were some kind of incentives, some kind of measurables, but there was still no way of implementing it and still no way of um, of managing it or yes. um, what's the word? <laughs> Governing it? Yes. And, and also, I, I, I just wanted to ask you, so, so now what is... Um, what is what was to happen to say a company that did not abide by um, the set you know principles or had to sort of find ways to avert um, complying to to the said policy? Yeah. So eventually, when these were eventually implemented in two thousand and seven, like you said, in order to have any um, license with the government, in order to have um, any any business with the government or the public sector, you needed to be black economic empowerment uh, qualified. Yes. You need to be BEE compliant. Yes. And so if you weren't BEE compliant, you couldn't get a license as a business, you couldn't get any um, partnership in the, in the public sector, and you couldn't get um, government tenders, essentially. Couldn't do any work for the public sector. All right. And you, um, you forfeited, you could forfeit JSE listing as well. Sure. Yeah. But, but we're getting there. So, one clear problem with this 
whole system was that since black people didn't have the funds or the wealth or the capital to fund their outright buying of shares or um, getting equal stake in the company or managerial processes, they were often highly leveraged. So they, they got into a lot of debt. So the BE Commission suggested that full ownership was understood as a situation where the BE company has paid for its full portion of an equity. Therefore, a company shouldn't be considered as black until its owners had paid the debts incurred in buying assets. So as a result, the, the BE objectives would obviously take longer to be achieved. So the 10-year kind of limit was, was scrapped. And so that resulted in kind of a limbo where there was no future stipulation of when BE needed to be addressed by and what would happen afterwards. What would happen after... So, so this holistic approach, um, it's, it's important to mention, was eventually coined broad-based black economic empowerment. And that yes. was, it wasn't just to benefit a minority group of black owners, but to address majority holistic business ownership management and procurement. Yes. Okay. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, was there then a time limit of ten years um, for you know bro- broad-based companies? Okay. Initially. All right. And and post that stage. And post what? post that stage, there hasn't been a limit set on it. All right. And that's when um, basically the the weightings came into play to become BE compliant. So this was all detailed in the 2003 document, a strategy for broad-based black economic empowerment. You can find it online. It's publicly accessible and you can go and read it. And basically, in essence, this document stipulated that if a company, like I said before, wished to bid for a government contract, renew a license or enter into a partnership with a public sector. So even companies that had licenses already but wished to renew it, they needed to be um, BE compliant to renew their license. So in effect, your business would become not a business if you weren't BE compliant. Sure. And so you, you can imagine for businesses whose sort of sole um, client was the business, um, was the government, beg your pardon. Um, Needed to change fast. Exactly. And what what does that mean in real terms? Well, I mean, we've, we've touched on it already and we've touched on one of the major dangers with Triple BEE is that you get this fronting, you get this um, shadow or passive ownership, quick deals to guys who just need to quickly sign a thousand page contract and expect it to, you know, expect it to read that. Yeah. You should probably, yeah. but let's be honest. Um, and so they, they, they sign to get, to get the shares at a 40% discount. Um, they eventually pay back those shares in, I don't know, in the form of buyback or dividends or, um, or just through paying back loans. And they don't even really know what the company does. They're not involved in the leadership. They're not involved in the decision-making. And and I think that's the practical artworking of that. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that's that's definitely one of the the, the major pitfalls um, and, and and most critics of, of um, the BEE in general, you know, highlight that. Um, but also, like, secondary to that, but closely linked is um, the level of um, sort of lack of, uh, what you call experience or a certain lack of um, credentials in that particular sector, especially in um, the procurement side of from the government, from from what I've been hearing from the history of uh, you know be being established from the get go, um, there was never like a clearly stipulated um, minimum credential that was required in terms of the the knowledge base of the of the black partner that was you know obviously supplying the government. Therefore, a substandard um, service or products are being um, delivered and exactly. um, also sort of overpricing and corruption and under under the table dealings come into effect, which is what we've seen in this whole state capture. Yeah debacle as well. Um, and so although they didn't make it um, a legal requirement to address these in 10 years, the, the act essentially um, was written to be addressed in the next 10 years. So there was supposed to be a review in, the, in, in 10 years, but it was only written into law in 2004 during Tabombeki's tenure, and they were only gazetted in 2007. And I think, yeah, what, what, we've, what we've kind of got to is that although the concept was very appealing. 
number one, the triple B, he didn't outline exactly what happens in the future and what happens once it is successful or not successful and what happens if the various targets aren't met. And so now here we are 13 years down the line. And I mean, let's just look at, let's, let's just look at what the numbers are right now. So the Triple BE Commission put out a report this year um, for the results of, of 2019. And they've got the results from, from 2017 to 2019. And um, so just in terms of overall ownership, the JSE in 2017 was 51% owned by black people. 2018, 43%, 2019, 42%. So there's been a steady decline in black ownership. And I think, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the videos that you sent to me um, alluded to this fact that you just have this kind of circulation and recycling of board members. So no new ownership, no new um, procurement of um, exec and non-exec committee board members, etc. Um, in terms of organs of state and SOEs, 1% representation in 2017, 10% in 2018, and 15% in 2019. So state-owned enterprises are 15% represented. 15% owned by black sure. people. That's, that's really counterintuitive. That is extremely counterintuitive. And then overall black woman ownership, 9% in 2017, 10% in 2018, 12% in 2019, which is far from where it should be. So it, it's, I mean, management of control. Management, management, like the representation of, of black people in management in, in JC listed companies is currently 44% only up from 38% in 2017 and 2018. Sure. Up from 10% in 1998. Sure. So really that's not a significant difference at all. And definitely not a majority stake. Sure, and that's really daunting. But I mean, doesn't it also speak to, you know, uh, an issue that we spoke about a bit earlier where is there really even a sort of a capacitation of, of, of black leaders you know, in as much as we want to see yes. more representation of, of black people in boardrooms, um, how many MBA students do we have out there? How many um, competent, um, you know, black people are we producing ultimately that can occupy these positions? Because otherwise, then we just, you know, falling into the same trap of then we having tokens because purely because we, we're not identifying the competent, you know, black people that have been capacitated to, to fill these positions. So is it really a problem of um, there is no initiative being taken, especially when, when, when you look at the whole, um, you know, um, state-owned enterprises situation is, you know, that there's obviously definitely a, a political imperative to have more people, black people represented in, you know, in SEOs. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing state-owned enterprises going down left, right and center. And that can definitely be traced back to, you know, people being hired into positions that they didn't qualify for. You know, yes, you exactly. Know, for, so, if, for example, I think um, one of the... Um, the the heads at uh, the central intelligence in South Africa only recently was found out that he didn't even hold him a trick, and this is the intelligence of the country. So are we are we are we do we have a deficit of black leaders? Therefore, we we simply cannot fill the vacuum that we have set out for ourselves. Oh, that's such a that's such a difficult question. And I mean, it's, it's perpetuated even through the research that I did for this, this, this year podcast. It was almost impossible to find articles, and, and I'll put a link to, to the article, but it was really difficult to find articles by black people and the few ramifications. And we can beat around the bush all day about whether BE has worked or not. And I, I just don't think there's value in that comment. I think there definitely is or are qualified leaders can be put into place, that can take the positions in white-owned companies that have the um, qualification. Black leaders are, I think, um, are out there statistically <laughs> because 80% of our population is black. What I think we need to be talking about and, and what I think, what I would hope the rhetoric tends towards in South Africa is that this is vital. 
that representation is vital, that that majority stake should be held by held representatively by the majority of the country. And I mean, we started talking about democracy, but essentially that that's what democracy is, is having representative leaders who represent the majority, who represent the entire nation. And so I think the, the question is about B in particular, and, and it's possibly a simple answer, but maybe you can wrap it up for us, Greg, is is BE still relevant? Yeah. So so I think as we've sort of established throughout the course of this conversation is um, BE is definitely a necessity. I think there's um, there's real reason based on the past um, and based on the previous unfortunate events that have occurred in this country. But having said that, any type of affirmative action has to have a time limit. Mm. Otherwise, we will get to a place where, um, you know, the we have created, which we're starting to feel like um, is the case. We've created an entire new class um, or what they call tenderpreneurs, which is people that simply based on the color of their skin have a disproportionate advantage, um, especially in government procurement, etc. And that is not an ideal situation because then we have you know, prices being inflated and then we have corruption and underhand dealings going on and at the expense of taxpayers. I mean, we've seen time and time again where tenders have been given out for for construction of of homes, um, especially, um, you know, when it comes to service delivery. And this is this is where it becomes fundamental, where, you know, on the one hand, we do want to see, you know, the this sort of equitability in how wealth is distributed, but not at the expense ultimately of society, right? And so in in my opinion, right, I, I think BEE needs to play out, but I think we need to, to set some very strict guidelines and we need to set some real targets, um, but fundamentally also get the fundamentals right. Right, so so we can't expect to have a BEE that works when we don't have social equity, when we don't have um, people, you know, having um, sort of a sense of of belonging and a sense of 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 identity as a social fabric, right? Because I think you know any state or nation is hinged on three things, right? So it's culture, it's economics, as well as um, culture, economics, as well as politics, right? Politics. So any country or a state, right, is hinged on on, on three things, right, which is uh, the politics, economics, and the social dynamics. And if these things don't align, when we, we've been speaking a lot about the political um, fractures in this, in this country, we've been speaking about the social fracture. And likewise, we can't have a political uh, economic cohesion that works when politically we're as fractured as we are and socially we're as fractured as we are. But fundamentally, get the education system working mm. so that we don't have to have these stooges that are just sitting there because of the color of their skin, but because we have um, capacitated people and we've given people the tools that it takes to actually occupy the position and we've ingrained people with the, the set of values that actually gratifies what is required of them in the positions that they are in because ultimately we're creating more problems um, than we are solving yeah. when we keep um, filling positions so you know to begin with as we said right it it was perfectly fine in 1995 to appoint a a sort of a token board member that does not have a, the credentials, you know, or is not entirely sort of uh, qualified to be in that position. But in 2020, surely, I do not think that that is acceptable, nor should it be acceptable for a black-owned company to receive a tender to, you know, to construct a road or to construct, you know, um, low-income homes at an inflated price, at lower um lower quality and the turnaround time is probably twice what the competitor is you would have delivered yeah, in yeah. simply because of the color of their skin because that is counterproductive mm. and at the end of the day we're creating you know more um, long-lasting problems than we actually solve yeah. so yeah in, in a nutshell i would say get the fundamentals right especially from an educational perspective 
Um, and second of all, let's not just fixate on this sort of economic, um, you know, economic leveling out of our society because that is not the answer. Politically, we need to find common ground. Socially, we need to start um, finding a commonality as a people before yeah. we can we can look at the, the the economic implication of it. So having a more holistic um, approach to um, emp- empowerment of people in general. Mm, I agree. What I'd really like to drive home is the personal aspect, and I mean I think you've made great commentary on 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 what the country should do as a whole. But perhaps from like a personal perspective, like I as a white person need to recognize that I have like systematic racism entrenched into my brain, that there's a there's a there's a an inkling at the back of my mind that sees a black person as not as capable because they're not as represented in the workplace, because they're not as represented in the school place, in tertiary education, et cetera, in management, et cetera, et cetera. And what I see is right at the top is a, a, a minority group of black people um, involved in um, state capture, in um, underhanded deals like you were talking about. And so then I map that on, onto the entire black people group in, in, subconsciously. And I have these subconscious racist um, beliefs that I need to address in myself. And what I need to realize is that a black, the, the, my black counterpart is not hired above me only because of the color of their skin. They are hired because of past injustices that need to be addressed. They're hired to increase the productivity of the business. They're hired to give hope to his family. They're hired to give hope to the business, to South Africa. It's not just about the color of their skin. To make it a me problem, to make it a, um, what's the word? To make it a victim problem is, is not helping the situation. It's not helping yourself and it's not going to help you get another job, right? And if you're a black person, you need to realize that you have value, intrinsic value. And even if you feel like a token when you're hired, you're hired to give hope. You're hired to inspire hope. You're hired to bring productivity to the business. And for flip's sakes, don't sign anything that you didn't read. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black and White podcast. We really appreciate your support. In our attempts to create a community that's not only online-based, we'd also like to hear your feedback and ultimately meet in person and actually affect change that's required in this country. Um, So please connect with us and drop us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. We are at The Black and White Pod all across. Links in the bio. Thanks. Cheers.